welcome on Episteme Entrepreneur, the web, the web, the web media dedicated to science, technology, and deep tech innovation. And today with my friend, Dr. Benjamin Del Sol, quantum physicist, European patent attorney, and deep tech innovation strategist, we have a great uh, guest. Um, his name is Amir Facebook. He's a PhD in quantum physics from the University of Toronto. Uh, he's, a far, he's a former quantum physicist, scholar. Uh, who turned data scientist, expert in uh, natural language uh, processing, artificial intelligence, and now he is the founder of Aggregate uh, Intellect. Uh, uh, sorry, Aggregate Intellect. There is a there is an amazing startup. You will have uh, plenty of time to explain what it is. Hi Amir, how are you? Thanks for being our guest. Of course, thanks for having me. Was a great it's pleasure. And honor. Yes. Uh, hi Ranj, how are you? Yeah, very very well. Thanks. Some pleasure you. to have Amir today. So, uh, you know, I, I made a thumbnail to, to, to present you this live uh, with uh, you as a kind of guru of artificial intelligence, but it's, it's true, you know, you're, you are, you are, you are, you are the leader of a community of AI experts, and by, and by, uh, by AI experts, I mean top-level people, you know, PhD, top-level engineer. You have 4,050 people who, who are connected to you. And this is very great you know, to have you because you are the man to know in the artificial intelligence. So once again, we are very happy to have you. But uh, before we before we dig into you know your, your your company, your startups, and what you do, we would like to know you a little bit better, you know, uh, because most of the time experts and scientists are, are are viewed by people like kind of Mr. and Mrs. Spock, you know, you are we are. You are kind of, you know, uh, uh, impressive people, but you are human being with flesh and bones and, and emotions. So, so could you little bit talk about your your path and uh, where are you from? I said I, I asked the question naively, but you know, uh, <laughs> I know where you're from. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sounds good. Um, so yeah, to to give you a bit of background, I guess uh, I am originally from Iran. No, really? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I am actually from south of Iran, uh, mm-hmm. near a city called Shiraz, which mm-hmm. is very similar to that famous wine. Um, so I grew up in a relatively small town, maybe about 100,000. Uh, my dad was and still is a vet. Uh, mm-hmm. And my mom uh, has been a housewife, but she's always been very, very entrepreneurial. She's always learning something new. And bringing people together around that, you know, art, around that craft that she learns and teaches everybody. She's like the source of knowledge for about craft stuff, you know, within the within the extended family. Um, and I have, uh, we are four kids in the family, all of them. All of us have, you know, gone through the PhD route and then moving into the industry. Um, I came in Canada and came, I came to Canada in 2008 to start my PhD in quantum physics, as you said. Um, and after that, I was here for six years. And after that, I went to England uh, to work at University of Oxford for a couple of years. Didn't love England because it was very gray all the time. <laughs> so I ended up coming back to the frozen land um, and have been uh, in Canada for the past, well, six years now. Toronto, right? In Toronto. Great. So uh, I just want to ask you about uh, your master's degree at Sharif University because we, we were talking about that with Benjamin because uh, uh, I, I was telling him that each time I, I, I notice an Iranian, you know, on LinkedIn who has a top position in startup, in, in academia, or uh, as an entrepreneur, most of these guys have a master's degree in electronics, in physics, in mathematics from Sharif University. It's like Sharif University produced the brain for the future United States, you know. And how uh, demanding is uh, the, 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 the program taught at Sharifji University? Uh, something we would like to understand, you know, because the, the name Sharifji is not known for most of people in Western, but uh, I know the, how they are good, you know, but how, can you maybe explain how it's still true? Is still Sharifji is still one of the best uh, uh, higher education in science uh, uh, in, in the Middle East? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it's a university of technology. So similar to maybe if we do a very crude analogy, it's like the MIT of Iran, right? Like it's a it's a university primarily focused on engineering and science, you know, STEM kind of disciplines. Um, I went there only for my master's. Uh, I did my undergrad uh, in a different university, 
Um, so the the setting was very different than the setting where people do undergrad. You know, like th- th- that's like super, super, super competitive. Like, you know, if you are so in Iran, we have this, you know, uh, university entrance exam. And, you know, everybody, you know, several hundred thousand people who participate every year are ranked according to their performance. And if you are anywhere within the first few hundred, you're definitely choosing Sharif University, unless there is a reason not to do it. So if you're in a technical field or a science field, most probably your first choice is Sharif University. And a lot of them are extremely smart people, like very, very talented. Uh, you know, obviously, I didn't make it in undergrad. I went there for my master's. Uh, but, you know, I interacted with a lot of, you know, students, uh, with a lot of, uh, folks that, you know, did their undergrad there. And you could clearly see that they were, you know, a step above anybody else that I had interacted. I had a similar experience when I, you know, went to Oxford. Uh, mm-hmm. and one thing that was really striking for me in both of these cases was that they're definitely like very, very smart students. Uh, in all of these cases. But one thing that was very interesting for me was that they were not necessarily working significantly harder than other people. They were very, very smart about how they were working, how they were studying. They were very disciplined about it. Um, and, and, you know, that's the thing that makes them really different. You know, they're, of course, very hardworking, of course, very smart. But the fact that they also have figured out how to work productively, mm. uh, I think makes a significant difference in their performance in undergrad, grad school, and then life. Yeah, this is fascinating. And uh, how do you see, uh, you know, the, 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 the heritage of, um, of, Allah, of Allah algorithm, you know, the, the Persian, the Persian, the inventor of algorithm in the, in the Persian uh, high school, uh, studying math very early. Is it, still, is, it, is it still something very present in the mind or, 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 is, or now it's just past history? Yeah. Um, I mean, there are a lot of things that are wrong with that nation and that, that country, unfortunately. But education is an interesting one because both from, you know, government and from society, there's a lot of expectations around high quality education. You know, my dad would have been happy if I, you know, didn't do anything with my life except studying and being like, <laughs> from an educational point of view. And that's, that's a sentiment of the whole society. Um, and even like, as I said, like government, uh, provides, you know, free public education in a lot of cases. In the past decade or so, there are a lot of alternatives, but the fact that free public education exists is a luxury. The fact that, um, uh, the fact that we study things fairly early on compared to, you know, what I've observed here in Western countries. It's quite interesting. Like we, we study like integrals and differentiation and PDEs and all of these things. I think much much earlier than folks in the Western countries come across. So uh, that that is still is there, and I think it really stems from the fact that uh, you're either a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer or you're nothing. Yeah. You know that that's a sentiment that it, it is a little you know probably softened recently. But that's a sentiment that exists there. You know, you're one of these or, or you have completely failed. And, and everything around education is built to set you up to be uh, successful in one of these disciplines. Or, you know, you, you end up being a mishap like science. And, and what about yourself? Uh, why did you choose to, to study uh, math and physics, you know, because your, your father was a vet. So you could have been attracted by biology or by veterinary science or by medical science. And why specifically math and physics? What was it? Did you choose this path because we're, we're just good at math and you know, but you choose the easiest way for you or you have a target at, at high school? You, you see, you saw yourself already as a, I don't know, as a scholar in, in mathematics or physics. I would love to tell you that it is all intentional, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, I knew that I didn't really like, uh, and I was damn wrong about humanities. Like I, I, I didn't like humanities when I was younger, so I, I didn't think that was a direction I wanted to go to. Um, you know, later in life, I learned how how much stuff happens there. And, yeah, uh, I just needed to be older and wiser, I think, uh, to realize that. But you know, when I was young, and again, like because of the pressure in the society, you're either an engineer, a physician, 
lawyer for nothing, right? Mm. <laughs> that's very binary. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure there was significant societal pressure. Uh, so my choices were, do I want to be a physician or do I want to be an engineer? And almost all of my family, you know, ended up in medical areas. You know, as I said, my dad is a vet. And all of my siblings ended up in bio and or medical or neuroscience related fields, uh, except me. And I'm the oldest. Um, so I didn't love those uh, areas. Uh, and I felt like I, I really struggled with biology, for example, in high school. So I didn't feel, and even chemistry that is a significant part of, you know, those disciplines, I didn't like. So I, I was good at math and physics, as you said. Um, but, you know, my target was engineering because, again, if you're not an engineer in those areas, then you're not doing it right. So and that was my target when I was, you know, studying for the entrance exam. My goal was, you know, actually mechanical engineering. I want to be a mechanical engineer. I love, you know, robots and cars and aircrafts and whatever. And I want to be able to build those. Uh, but when I did my entrance exam, my ranking wasn't, my ranking was pretty decent, but wasn't good enough to do mechanical engineering in Shiraz University. That's where you know, my family lived. at, the, And I wasn't ready to move away from my family. Uh, so I ended up choosing physics, not because I was, you know, one of these kids that was like, oh my God, physics and whatever. It was just, you know, the next thing that I had in my ranking. So I ended up in physics and ironically, to a large extent, because of the societal pressure, because, you know, everybody in the extended family was like, oh my God, you could do, you know, petroleum engineering, you could do mechanical engineering, you can do aerospace in other cities. Why do you insist on staying here and doing this stupid thing called physics and you know it really got into me at some point and i went to our advisor and i said look i made a mistake i regret it i want to change to engineering and she was like great so here's the paperwork but here's what i have to tell you if you want to be successful you can't be successful wherever you are it doesn't matter what you're doing it doesn't matter what your discipline is don't let the societal pressure to push you out of this because i think you would be good at this and it was probably to some some extent my laziness. I didn't know what paperwork, but also it really <laughs> uh, impacted me in a very very significant way. And I had like two or three of these kind of advices in my life that completely changed the path. But I decided to stay in physics, give it a go, and figure you know I'll, I'll change when I do my. Uh, and as soon as I came across quantum computing, uh, sorry quantum physics. I was just completely in love with that. And I was like, and, and for my master's, my ranking was actually really good. So that's why I went to Sharif University. And I could have done almost any engineering discipline I wanted. Uh, it would have been harder, but, you know, at that point, I was very good at studying and you know, getting good grades and whatever. Uh, but I decided to stay in physics because nothing else had quantum and I wanted to do quantum. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, I, I'm, for joking, I, I, I'm used to say, you know, um, if you can pass, you know, there is the Turing test for, for the artificial intelligence and for the quantum computing, you have the, the, <laughs> the, the quantum intrication test. If your, if your brain doesn't explode when you understand the concept, <laughs> it's okay, you can continue, you know, because it's, it's so crazy. Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> so, um, so then, okay, you, you, you moved to, to Toronto, you made your PhD and then, uh, you, you, you fly to Oxford, great university, you perform your post, your postdoc there with a lot of publication and patent also. Uh, I, great. I take a look on Google Scholar. You are, you're amazing guy. And, and then you have this boiling uh, desire you know, to move to industry and you work at several years as a, as a uh, NLP uh, product lead uh, for the Royal Bank of Canada. And right. what I would like to understand is um, how is the change, you know, from the working in academia with yeah. Andrews and working for a corporation and a big corporation uh, with, that is has that it has its own way of working, etc. How do you see the difference in terms of research and development between these two worlds? Yeah, um, I mean, the summary of it is that I hated it. <laughs> uh, the, the corporate work and corporate culture part. Uh, but, you know, in academia, you know, as you said, like I was working in probably one of the top three labs. So I was surrounded by people who were at least as good as I was, like in terms of academics, like there are a lot of people who had, you know, several natures and patents and, you know, very, very high performing research. Um, and, you know, I was at the top of my game, but 
I felt, you know, I had to work so hard to even be seen because I didn't want to, you know, be a faculty member in a second tier university. I thought, you know, I wanted to be in a top tier university, but usually getting a job at a top tier university is very difficult, even if you are a super high performing academic. So, you know, I, I sort of in the middle of my postdoc uh, position there, I decided if I want to put this much effort, I will put that effort into building something more meaningful financially or otherwise. Uh, so, and I wanted to get off of the, you know, economic hamster wheel. Uh, so that that's what, you know, encouraged the move to industry. I was very worried about, uh, you know, the work culture in industry. So I did a bunch of research um, and I decided that the startups were, the, were the, the way to go for me personally, because I, I had an expectation that I would not last long in, uh, in, a, in a corporate culture, but, you know, life has constraints. So I didn't have much saving. I didn't have any business experience. I didn't know how to talk to business people. I still don't. But, you know, seven, eight years ago, I was even worse than that. So... So I decided that it makes sense for me to work at a court to learn how to, you know, interact with business people, how to talk business, uh, and also, you know, ramp up a bit of savings uh, so that, you know, if I decide to do a startup, um, I have enough financial backing. Um, and yeah, I, I worked at a corporate, you know, my, my thinking was I'll work here for six months. I save money, learn a few things and move. Uh, but I ended up staying there for two years, um, for, Variety of reasons. Probably laziness was part of it. Probably, you know, the hand, the golden handcuff of having decent salary without having to work too hard for it was was part of it. Uh, but I was very very bored. And um, you know, from a technical skills point of view, um, I wasn't really using my bandwidth at all. Like I wasn't even close to it. Uh, so I started doing a lot of things outside of work. Like essentially, at some point. Uh, I was given the opportunity to manage a team uh, within the first year that I worked there. You know, I, I just had come from academia. I was just thinking seriously about leaving. And then my manager was like, do you want to be a manager? Um, and, you know, it was more salary. It was more control and power. So it was attractive. I figured, why not give it a try? Um, but that meant that I couldn't code anymore or be, you know, hands-on on the technical side. And that was, you know, one of the other super interesting advices that I got in my life uh, that changed everything. And it was, you know, become a manager because your impact will be higher. Uh, you know, you can build way more with a team, uh, but make sure that you stay technical because if you lose your technical edge, you become. Mm. I was like, oh, okay, but how? Like I'm in meetings all day. And, you know, the person that gave me the advice was just figure something to do outside of work that forces you to stay technical. Mm. And that's how I started the community. Like, you know, that was like really the, the spark that literally that night I messaged a bunch of people and I was like, you want to gather every week and read papers together? And, you know, that was, you know, the first 10 people that showed up and then they become 20, 40, 80. It just grew in a few months. We were hundreds of people. Everybody was bringing in their friends to talk about papers. And that was the beginning of our community, like literally that advice and my selfish attempt at trying to be uh, state technical, although I was moving into management. I love I love how you explained, you know, the, the emerging moment of, of your crazy community. Once again, I re remind 4,050 experts, the best experts in artificial intelligence in your community, very dynamic, you organize every Every month, every week, uh, many workshops, seminars. It's crazy. Uh, and, and, and how it's emerged, the story of how it's emerged is just great. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks. Of course. Uh, and so, uh, you, you could, after, okay, maybe, uh, the Royal Bank of Canada was not so exciting, but you could, with your background, you know, with your, with your expertise, etc., you could have ended in GAFAM, you know, working with a, with a one million dollar salary every year, you know. What happened in your mind is to say, okay, now I want to launch a startup. <laughs> <laughs> Craziness. Yeah. <laughs> <That's what happened. laughs> um, you know, it's uh, something happens in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a physiological defect, I think. Uh, no, joking aside, you know, if if you remember, I said, you know, my my when I was transitioning from academia to industry, I was I was concerned about it. I was, you know, worried that the uh, you know, although I, 
academia wasn't the right place for me to stay, I was worried that maybe industry is not the right place either. So, you know, I wanted to have a better understanding of what I was getting into, because that was a major change. Uh, and I talked to a lot of people and um, and from people who had done similar transitions, I heard that, you know, exactly what I experienced at my corporate job was what they were experiencing. So I knew what I was getting into. And I knew that that wasn't the place that I wanted to stay. I knew that I wanted to work in a startup. I knew that I wanted to be on the ground floor. What I didn't know was if I necessarily wanted to start my own or join another one. But, uh, but I was also very, very opinionated. You know, sometimes when I talk to people, like I have in the community that you mentioned, we also have a, a founders sub community, a few hundred people that are founders in Toronto that we meet every week uh, and go for a walk and whatever. Uh, one of the things that um, I usually talk to them about is the fact that you got to be obsessed about the problem. Like you have to stay awake at night thinking about a problem. Otherwise, you should not do a startup. Right. Like it, it's a hard journey. So you have to, it, it, it has to be something that is personal. Right. And the thing that was personal for me was the fascination with the ability to use AI on text to extract information and insight and knowledge. Right. So that was like absolutely fascinating. Like that's what I did in my corporate job mostly for most of the use cases I worked on were similar to that. But what I really wanted to do was how can I use this to make science better? And that, that explains our domain, AI.science, because originally the idea was, can we start building AI models that accelerate science? Uh, so th that, that's the problem statement I was fascinated with. Um, and, and, you know, I looked around for startups that were doing that. There were a few, but they weren't really uh, doing what I wanted to do. Um, and, you know, because of the community, because of the momentum that was happening, I really felt... And it was a crazy decision, but I felt confident to just leave my corporate job and I start this company and hope to figure it out along. Uh, <clears throat> and, you know, I'm happy that I made that decision and, you know, made that stupid choice of, you know, burning through all of my savings, et cetera, et cetera, because, you know, the past four years that I've worked on this startup has been a remarkable journey in terms of, you know, it's probably worth 10 MBAs. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of how much I've learned about, you know, how business works, how industry works, how product building works, uh, and most importantly, you know, understanding human behavior and above all, understanding myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I spent probably three years banging my head against the wall trying to figure out how to create a business, right? But it wasn't until the moment that I realized that this is a marathon and I need a lot of personal development like in terms of my physical fitness, in terms of mental health, in terms of social health, in terms of many, many other factors that are things that nobody teaches you at a school. I have to be the master of all of these about myself before I can create a business that will be successful. And of course, there are anomalies, but you know, it, it's been a remarkable journey in terms of how much I've learned. Uh, and the reason that I you know, continue building community, continue educating, is that I want everybody to know that this is not only about a product, it's not only about a business. It's a significant transition that happens and you just come out a completely different person even if the business doesn't end. Absolutely. Uh, we are used to say that entrepreneurship is a social adventure and, <laughs> and this is what you do. You, are, you bring a lot of people with you, interacting with everybody, you facilitate uh, interaction between them and, and this is really great. So you, so you, you, you launched an uh, aggregate intellect. Uh, how many people are you and what you do exactly? To, to whom do you address? What type of client? And uh, how do you do it? <laughs> I mean, do you do it uh, at home? Do you tape your algorithm yourself behind your, behind your, behind your screen? Or do you out crowdsource? How do you work? Um, <laughs> that's a complicated <laughs> question. Sir. So, um, my team is, um, my team has grown over the years, but, you know, in the past year or so, we have reduced the size of the team um, for reasons that I will explain in a minute. But right now, uh, I have a development team that is overseas. Uh, so there are my full stack developers. Uh, I have uh, a research team at McGill University. That, that's a, a few uh, grad students that worked on a lot of our R&D initiatives. Um, 
And, you know, given that we have a community and we never wanted to monetize the community, what I, what I really enjoy doing that I think is relatively different than other communities is, uh, not only we charge people, not only we don't charge people to be part of our community, but we also create economic incentives for them to be part of the community. So to Mm -hmm. some extent, my team sometimes expands as, you know, several, you know, a handful of people from the community work in our initiatives. If there is a project we are working on and there is a client that is paying for it, we just share the upside with the community. And so, uh, so my, my, you know, that, that's why I said it's a complex question to answer how many people are in the team because it's very, very elastic. The community is an extension of my team and it grows and, you know, redacts based on whatever is necessary to happen uh, in terms of our business. Uh, so that, that's the team size in terms of what we're doing. Uh, as I said, you know, my, my very, very early idea was how can we use AI to advance science? Uh, so the audience of that would have been academics. Uh, but very quickly, we learned that academics or anything. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> although we were stuck with the domain, I really liked it, but we kept it. Uh, but we pivoted towards uh, an education. So we sort of changed our idea and said, what if, um, what if we used AI to curate research as it is to be used by industry practitioners. Like if you're a machine learning engineer in industry, you have to read a lot of scientific papers. What if you used AI to make that process? At least tell you which papers to look at. So that, that's what we did for a while. We did a lot of manual curation of content um, and, you know, helped people create stuff, right? Um, but even like we launched, we launched a subscription model. We ramped up to a few thousand dollars recurring revenue per month, etc. But I shut it down because I didn't love uh, the people that it was ad- attracting. So it was attracting a lot of certificate holders, is what I call them, and a lot of people who came and did our, you know, content and then immediately asked for certificates. And I was like, I don't believe in so no. Uh, so what we ended up doing actually was to tell them, since we also had launched the YouTube channel and it was pretty successful at the time, um, I told them, you know, use our content, create a small MVP, a little product. With what you learn, create a demo from it, and we put that demo on our YouTube channel, and that's your search. So in three cases, we got approached by buyers who wanted to purchase those projects, and in one case, we ended up selling the project for twenty thousand dollars and the team. Wow! And I didn't love the edtech angle, but I was like, oh my god, like we can do, we can make money from this. So mm-hmm. we switched the model completely to marketplace. The idea being, can we go to companies and say, what are interesting R and D projects? Can be posted to our community. And if they build something that you want to acquire their IP, we take a cut. And that was a very interesting model. We worked with several startups. We worked with Government of Canada on a bunch of environmental data science initiatives. Um, but ultimately, we realized that uh, it was very hard to scale that marketplace like all marketplace business models are. Uh, so we decided to focus more specifically on the software we were building. And the idea of the software was still, you know, there is technical content. Can we use AI on it to make it more accessible, easier to consume, more targeted, etc.? Uh, so we started building, you know, what we later learned that it was really a knowledge management. So the idea would be to connect to all of the knowledge sources and help you navigate uh, to to the content that was relevant to the use case, the business. Uh, so we did that for a while until ChatGPT came out, uh, and it completely disrupted how we were working. Um, you know, my, my team was working on large language models, the research team, but, uh, we didn't have it as part of our product. So, uh, since the beginning of this year, uh, we sort of were forced to pivot into future because, you know, we were planning to start working on these things a year from now, but then we had the opportunity to do it right away and the pressure from the market to work on the way. So we sort of pivoted our product completely. Sorry, go on. No, I have a, sorry for that. I have a very dumb question. For yeah. someone who's not, uh, you know, a, a physicist or, or mathematician or someone who was watching your work from out and outside you. I see also, like everyone, the, the, the emergence of, of, of OpenAI open and ChatGPT. And, and is it really so mysterious, you know, how they work, their algorithm? Or is it is it a way to retro-engineer and to understand how their algorithm works? Of course, not to use it because it's, it's their proprietary, but even... Yep. But it's like, you know, they have this kind of a mysterious bubble coming from an, an alien world, you know, and all the, all the I've seen has been, has been uh, shocked, you know, by their emergence. 
can you talk about a little bit this uh, how this uh, happening in, in the in the in the tech yeah. field? Um, so so the the algorithm behind GPT, uh, you know, the transformer uh, transformer architectures have been around since 2015. So that part is not you know, completely uh, new and or surprise. Um, and there has been you know gradual progress from you know the, the invent of them to uh, to more advanced architecture we have today. We even know uh, pretty accurately the architecture of versions of GPT that came before ChatGPT uh, because most of these have been open source. So the the community has access to exactly the architecture, data sets used, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, for most of the cases, most of the models that we've used. Uh, but since the back end of chat GPT, like the, the change was gradual enough that we have a very good guess about what the back end of chat GPT is, but we don't know exactly because they didn't open source that. What they did was to provide it as an API that anybody can call, uh, but they didn't say exactly you know, what they changed compared to the last model. Again, because of the gradual change that has been happening since 2015, there's a very good guess about what it is, and you know, open source community has tried to reproduce the same performance with you know uh, a lot of success actually. Like they're not, I don't think we have any model that is as as good, but models that get very very. Uh, so we we do have a very good idea what it is and what it does. Mm -hmm. But the remarkable and even like the model uh, that is behind Chat GPT um, was available to a large extent through API calls throughout the past year before ChatGPT came out. But the thing that made a huge splash was essentially a product show. Like OpenAI decided that the performance of the model was good enough that they wanted to make it available to every person through a chat interface. And that's a, that's a very interesting product just because from a model performance point of view, it was available even six months before ChatGPT came out. It didn't make the news. But as soon as it was launched as an application that anybody can interact with, then it made a huge difference. So uh, to, to summarize, you know, an answer to your question, we have a very good understanding of what is happening in those models. But uh, since they close source the recent models, um, we can only guess and infer. Uh, we don't unfortunately know exactly. For example, in GPT-4, we have very good guesses about, you know, the combination of models they're using, but we don't know exactly they haven't. Fascinating, and uh, so you. I, I sorry, I caught you when you were explaining that you are there were ChatGPT uh, uh, boom, and you were you are moving to a, to a new model, right? That's right. So, so essentially, you know, th that was a good segue because the reason that you know we had to pivot was not because we were surprised. It was because that product choice was made by you know OpenAI team in terms of launching the model as a, as a chat app. And that immediately uh, changed the expectation of our end because up to that point, they were happy with whatever user experience we were providing. But all of a sudden, we, we almost felt it over a week that people were like, why can I not talk to them? <laughs> I just want to type my question and have it answered. Like, why do I have to go through all of these back? Uh, so th that's the reason, like the user experience expectation was the reason that we had to, you know, we, we were aware of the models. We were playing around with them. But the fact that we had to immediately start incorporating those in the product uh, was really just forced upon us by that product choice that opened it. So, which is quite interesting. Like that creates a whole new world of uh, opportunities as well. You know, it created that challenge, but also gave us access to models that we were planning to build in the next two years, right? But all of a sudden we had access to them. So we started thinking, okay, what we were building is not going to be possible. So what should we build? And we had some ideas. And up to that point, you know, as I said, our focus was very heavily on machine learning. So we had to go back to the drawing board and think, okay, the facts are we have access to these models that we were planning to build now through APIs. Uh, people want to talk to the system and they want to do, uh, you know, an easier user experience. Uh, but we need to make money right now. So how can we make money? And through a bunch of experiments that we ran, we ended up deciding that we should pivot away from engineers and target salespeople. And you know that's a long conversation that we can get into, but essentially the, the fundamental idea was instead of selling to machine learning engineers, why not sell to sales engineers? Because they still have to write a lot of complex technical documents 
that requires requires proper curation of content and, and knowledge, but you know their requirements are not the same as machine learning engineers. And also, sales departments control the money of the whole organization. So if we can get them excited about what we're building, get them to pay, that's a pathway to go to the whole you know enterprise eventually. Uh, but also a much better starting point. So in the past, you know, several months, we've been very focused on, okay, how can we pivot our product to be used by salespeople to, for example, generate technical proposals, white papers, case studies, so that a task that takes them several days to do can be done in half an hour uh, with our system that just scrapes information from everywhere, brings it together, writes the document, and then you collaborate with the AI to modify the document. Uh, but in the meantime, we also have been getting a lot of requests and inbounds from businesses who are trying to figure out what does generative AI mean for my business. So we've been also doing, you know, a bunch of service work, uh, you know, essentially anywhere as high touch as, sorry, as high level engagement, like coaching them to figure out how to do things, to training them all the way to co-development or even like incubating products inside their businesses. So uh, we are doing a range of things there, uh, but, you know, it, it pays the bills and helps us understand uh, the market better. Uh, just go ahead, go ahead. Please. Yeah, yeah. And I, I have two questions: an old one and, and a new one. I will start with the new one. Uh, did you thought about? Or did Did you think about um, patent drafting? Because you, you you're <laughs> talking about content technical content creation. So of course, yeah. my mind goes directly to drafting a patent application. So did Did you thought? About, uh, have you thought about that? Yes, a lot. <laughs> so. Uh, when we were thinking about what use case can we go after that makes money, uh, we we put two constraints on the use case. One was, is it something that needs to happen every day and or every week? And is it something that is very closely related to making money? Uh, so we wanted to we wanted the use case we focus on to have these. So patents are great. It's it's a very painful process. But you're probably right in patents per per team, right? Yeah. So you, you might be a huge organization that writes like hundreds of patents a year, but per team, that's not more than a couple. So, and also yeah. it is not very directly related to revenue. So it is, it is harder to put a price point. Yeah, I see your point, but I was thinking more about IP firms as clients, because for example, I write uh, around one patent per week, mm -hmm. so believe me, it's and I'm alone. <laughs> so yeah. when you deal with an IP firm with uh, 50 attorney, patent attorneys, uh, it makes a lot of a lot of patent application yeah. uh, drift uh, every day. Yeah. So um, it could be something. I, I'm telling you that because I, I have tr I have tried to develop myself some AI tools. So I some works, some I'm still working on it to help me draft patent application, of yeah. course. There is already some different kind of uh, different companies that uh, provide this kind of services. Uh, but that could be something interesting, I think, from a business use case uh, point of view. I think it would be something interesting. Not working with industries, but working with IP law firms directly. No, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> but yes, no, I think we, we missed something about your, your amazing journey. It's okay. You have a PhD in quantum physics, and now you are doing AI stuff. So I think the audience would like to know how you go from quantum physics to AI. <laughs> yeah. Please. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll say a couple of things. Uh, so I, I've been answering that question probably once a week since I left academia. Yeah, I know. I, I have the same about IP and quantum physics, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, at some point, I wrote an article about you know everything that happened during that journey. And uh, you know I encourage anybody who's listening and is curious to read that. It is on my LinkedIn. Uh, there's a lot of detail. But you know the summary of it is that as a physicist, you know, as an experimental physicist, uh, I was good at you know, obviously problem solving, I was good at math, I was good at stats, I was good at dealing with data, and, you know, data science is all of those things just applied to a different data set. So uh, to a large extent, what I needed to do was to learn the vocabulary of how people talk about these things in industry setting. I, I had the technical skills, but, you know, I, I needed to, to learn the vocabulary. And of course, you know, I needed to formalize my ability to code a little more because, you know, in academia, you usually just write a spaghetti code. 
uh, in industry, you have to write a slide. But yes, my code yes. was still pretty spaghetti, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know, just just more software engineering concept become relevant. So um, so th those things were things that I needed to learn to do the transition. But you know, I, I was coming from a fairly strong background from a technical point of view, I think. Um, and you know, that was thanks to the fact that I was an experimentalist. I think you know a lot of people who are theorists. Um, it might be a little harder for them because you know they might not have as much experience working with data. So that might be something that they have. Um, but you know, an important thing is that everybody's journey is you know specific to them and you know very unique to them. Uh, so one thing that was very very helpful when I was doing the transition was you know a few people that gave me advice about how they did it. What it meant for them, how they felt afterwards, etc. So one thing that I started doing very, very early on, as soon as I started working in industry, was uh, to essentially dedicate 20 minutes a day to just talk to people about how that transition can happen for them. So you know, people have been booking me almost every day, you know, for the past several years, just telling me this is what I'm trying to do. I read your article, but I still have these, you know, 10 questions. Like, how do I deal with this? How do I deal with that? And I don't have the answers, but, you know, I can brainstorm with them. I can give them pointers. I can provide the, you know, hiring manager point of view. Uh, so I think, you know, if anybody is going through that transition, reaching out to people who have done it, you know, obviously there's a lot of content you can read, but, but talking through, how others have done it and how that can be done for you is a, is a super valuable resource. Uh, I, I proactively have a link on my LinkedIn called Coffee Chats that people used to book me, but most people don't, but nobody prevents you from sending them a request and saying, can I pick your brain about this thing? Because I noticed you did this transition. I'm exactly where you were. Can I take 10 minutes of your time? And most people might not respond, but even if five people a week respond to you and you can talk to them, that's going to create the recipe. Yes, yes. Wonderful. I really love also the part of about personal development uh, on your journey because it's indeed a very, very... I mean, it's the first step. Uh, you can do nothing if you don't work on yourself first. So so yes. I'm really happy to hear that because a lot of um, startups do it but never talk about it. It's like a uh, personal stuff. It's uh, I don't want to talk about it. And, but but at the end, when you are successful, it's because you have worked on yourself. So Definitely. so congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. I uh, the, the the very very beginning of this journey was um, a few years ago. You know when when I was early in my startup journey, I was like super stressed out, and you know it was affecting my health. It was affecting my relationships. And for my birthday. My girlfriend gave me a book called Keeping Your Shit Together as an Entrepreneur. That's like literally the title of the book. Uh, and I think it was passive aggressive. She says that she just wanted to help me. But that was a fantastic book. Like it really changed how I think, thought about entrepreneurship. Like before that, I was like, entrepreneurship is all about go, 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 go. But in reality, it's a marathon. You have to balance yes. everything. They're great. Uh, I have a question because as you, you are aware, uh, an experimental physicist. So being, there is always, you know, this, this, uh, this split between the theoretical physicist and the experimental physicist. I'm a biologist, so I, we are, we have only experimental biology. There is no theoretical biology between them. <laughs> uh, so experimental, uh, scientist means that you perform, uh, experiment based on the scientific methods. So I won't explain what it is, but, uh, you know, we have control, we have, et cetera, positive, uh, experiment, et cetera, we compare, uh, and we are used to say that uh, launching a startup needs skills of, a, of a, the experimental scientists, you know, to, to perform experiments, very rigorous experiments. Did you did you also implement this behavior, this knowledge, the skills of performing experiments um, for, for testing your business idea, or your business, uh, you know, uh, you, you have an idea, maybe this target for us is good. Do you, do you, do you, do you jump on the idea and you test it? Uh, or you, you, you do very formal experiments, you know, to yeah. discuss the business idea? Yeah, I mean, well, the answer, the short answer is yes. Um, like when I was leaving academia, one of the things that I wanted to have in regardless of what I end up doing was to have that scientific and experimental point of view. 
um, to to whatever I do. And I should, you know, clarify one thing. Like when I say theorists, it doesn't mean that they don't run experiments. They just don't run experiments with devices. Mm-hmm. Like they, they do a lot of, you know, simulation experiments, for example, as theorists. Um, but the, the overall process is the same in all cases. Like there is a hypothesis. There are assumptions you're making. There is a validation plan. There is a measurement. There's observations and you, right? So that, that process exists if you're a theorist or experiment in physics. Uh, and I wanted that to exist in whatever I work. So I thought, you know, data science has science in the name, so it must be that. And it was to some extent that, but it wasn't really what I wanted. Uh, so after data science, I worked in product development that had that aspect of experimentation much more in my mm-hmm. opinion. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed being a product person. And, you know, I still identify as a product person, I think, more than a data scientist. Um, and and that, that's to a large extent because of that reason that it has a significant amount of experimentation. Like you have to experiment everything, like your assumptions about the audience, the visibility of the viability. You cannot leave anything unchecked. You cannot just make assumptions and for the best, right? So, and then entrepreneurship amplifies that by a factor of 10 because then you're not just building a product that if it fails, you know, whatever corporate is giving me another product to work on, if it fails, it fails, you know? Mm-hmm. So you have to be, you know, very careful and methodical about a lot of details. So in the past few years, we've been more or less rigorous about how we think about experiment design and measurements and things like that. But it is part of our habit to always think about you know, what are our hypotheses? What are our assumptions? What's a validation plan that is cheap uh, and, you know, less risky? Um, and how can we identify the most risky assumptions about what we are doing and try to focus on uh, essentially invalidating those first? So it, it's definitely been a significant part of what we do. And I don't think any startup would work without that unless they get extremely. Absolutely. I'm totally convinced by that. Uh, uh... And implementing uh, exp- the scientific method, the scientific uh, experimental method is very important for startups uh, to test business ideas, business assumptions. So this is very great. So we are reaching the end of this great interview. And uh, what what is the future of aggregate intellect? Will you uh, will you knock at the door of, of investors, or do you want? What is your philosophy? One hundred percent bootstrap? Are you are you fund- seeking to raise funds? Uh, what is your future? Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, I like to think that we are a deep tech company. Uh, mm-hmm. That I say I'd like to think that because I don't think there is a very clear definition of what that means. But, uh, you know, I'd like to, you know, continue researching at the cutting edge of, you know, large language models and just AI technologies in general. So, uh, and for a company like that, you definitely need capital. Uh, yeah. That usually would come from VCs, right? So, uh, we have raised some money in the past, but we have, we are mostly bootstrapped. Um, I would like to raise money at some point. Uh, I don't think right now is the right market to raise money because investors are still formalizing their thesis around generative AI and large language models. Like the majority of investors I've talked to recently, they don't even know what it means, let alone having a thesis. Uh, so they, they probably need a little more time to formulate their, their thoughts about it. And at the same time, we are getting a lot of inbounds for companies who are trying to incorporate these things in their businesses. So, you know, we, we have the revenue opportunity, although it is, you know, more service based. So the, the, the vision for the next year or so is continue doing service work because we are establishing business relationships. We are refining our sales pipeline. Uh, we are learning more deeply about industry needs, business needs, uh, especially in this new, area of you know sales focused teams rather than you know engineering that we were focused on before but we are not dropping the products you know we are we are still working very heavily uh, on the product development um you know part of our product is open source so community is contributing to it but part of it is you know behind uh, the private walls of our repos you know obviously uh, so we, we are continuing to build that and, and the vision is that within the next year, most probably, you know, six months from now, say early 2024, we want to, we want to start reaching out to VCs and hopefully raise a seed round. Um, as I said, I have made my team very lean, but instead of, you know, having more people in the team, I'm working on a few very, very interesting, uh, strategic partnerships. Uh, I'm not ready to share a lot of details about them, but they're extremely exciting 
partnerships that we're forming uh, on the business side that hopefully will enable us to do significantly more complex projects than what I would have been able to do on my own. So I'm very excited about that, and I'm excited to make the announcement you know, when, when the details are finalized. Uh, but you know, we, our, our vision is uh, either, uh, like that's still to be determined, but either to launch a SaaS product somewhere in the next half a year, Ooh. or make a decision towards creating a uh, studio VC. So somewhere that we can start incubating products using our, our, our own platform and a community. It's funny uh, so, I was asking you the question, did you, did, you, did you think about becoming a startup studio? And you answered very, very fascinating. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I'm extremely fascinated by what our community can do. And as you said, you know, it's a very, very high caliber community. Like I never, I never pushed to grow the community beyond uh, my ability to control the quality of what goes on in it. Uh, so I'm, I'm very happy with people that are in the community, the engagement they have. And what they can do, like, you know, we've had sub-communities who've built, you know, products and services and sold them, right? Like I gave one example, but there are multiple examples like that. So the idea of the incubation is very, very interesting. And, you know, the, the partnership that I talked about might actually enable us to explore that more seriously. I don't think I can do that on my own. You know, I don't have enough social capital on the business side to be able to pull that off. But I'm hoping that through some partnerships that might be possible. But I don't want to do a traditional studio VC that is very focused on uh, uh, on relationships and you know you know go to market playbooks etc. I want to build a studio VC if you decide to go in that direction that is data driven and based on a very very strong knowledge management platform. So uh, a lot of balls in the air. We'll see where they land. But uh, I'm very excited about the the months that are coming. Yes, it's very exciting, and, uh, and we will follow you closely to see uh, yes. the development. Benjamin, maybe you have a, a last question for, for, for our dear Amir? No, no, I, I have a lot of things to talk with him uh, <laughs> after, but uh, no, 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 right now it's perfect. Uh, I love your journey, I, I love your mindset, and I think you are a perfect example uh, for several things. Everybody has, has its own journey, but uh, there is some checkpoints that we have to, to, to go, and I think you, you are perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amir. It was a, such a pleasure to have you today, and uh, thank, you, thank you again for sharing your story and your passion with all of us. Thank you so much. Of course. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's always exciting to talk about what has happened and what's coming up, and I hope your audience... Yeah, I'm sure. Thank you very much. Right. Take care. Bye-bye. See you soon.